Welcome to the Faith and Culture Now podcast. I'm Scott Schiffer, and today I'm honored to be joined by Reverend Ben Duholm of Christ Lutheran Church here in Dallas, Texas. So, Reverend, it's so nice to be with you today. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, well, today we're going to be talking about just the distinctives and the characteristics of the Lutheran tradition. And so I want to begin by just asking you, what are some of the sort of, uh, I guess, cliff note history of the Lutheran Church and how it got started and where it is today? The Lutheran tradition uh, usually traces our history back to the life and work of Martin Luther, who was a Augustinian friar, uh, born in the late 15th century in Germany, what's now Germany. And uh, he was an Augustinian friar, and he was steeped in the theology and the scriptural studies of his day, which led him into uh, a role as an interpreter and sometimes critic of the, um, the ministries and the doctrine that he encountered uh, at that time and place. Uh, most famously, uh, he is identified, and, and we are identified, with a, a controversy about the sale of indulgences, and with his 95 theses concerning the sale of indulgences, which were, uh, depending on which source you, you trust, were either sent by mail to the Archbishop of Mainz or nailed to a church door in Wittenberg, Germany. Um, we like to use the nail to the church door story because it's a little more colorful. But uh, from, from that moment, more or less, on uh, the, the reforming uh, arguments and polemics that Luther got involved in sort of spread, uh, they changed, they involved new people, new issues, and within a few years, you have um, the beginnings of what you would call Lutheran, what would later be called Lutheran theology, uh, which becomes um, formalized through uh, certain official documents, um, uh, most famously the Augsburg Confession from 1530, and, uh, and then becomes institutionally um, formed in the regions of Western Europe where the princes or rulers embraced the Augsburg Confession or the Reformation. And, uh, and in those countries, um, a, some kind of structure, some kind of definition needed to be developed for life after, after communion with the Church of Rome. And uh, since you mention it, uh, the defining the, the, the technical definition of uh, Lutheranism is essentially contained in this book, which is called the, the Book of Concord. These are the documents from the original generation of the Reformers, plus uh, the de decades that followed that, that attempted to, um, to formulate and define what it meant to be a member of this church or to be a uh, minister um, uh, in this church. And that is still in force today. So, so anyone who does what I do, you have to promise to teach in accordance with this uh, um, forbidding volume of, of 16th century theology. Very good. So for people that come to visit a Lutheran church today, what are some things they can expect to see in a worship service? 
Lutherans have developed a lot of diversity in worship and a lot of diversity in how we organize themselves. Some Lutheran churches will look and feel very similar to Roman Catholic churches. Some Lutheran churches will feel a little bit more like, um, you know, non-denominational style of worship. Uh, those things, that diversity has all developed over the years. In general, what you're going to find in most Lutheran churches will be an emphasis on the word, mm -hmm. um, by which we mean, first and foremost, the preaching of, of the word, the public reading and the public preaching of scripture, uh, specifically oriented around the gospel. And by that, we don't mean the four books of the evangelists, but around God's promises or good news, mm -hmm. which we hold to be contained in the Old Testament and in the New Testament and in every genre in the scriptures. So there would be an emphasis on preaching um, both law, God's commands, and gospel, God's promises. Um, hearing those in the words of scripture being read and in the preaching of the pastor. Uh, and, and also uh, an emphasis on the presence of God through the sacraments. So uh, Lutherans um, uh, hold to two sacraments, two, um, two sort of visual or tangible promises ordained by Christ for our salvation, uh, baptism and Holy Communion. So uh, you are in many Lutheran churches today, you're, gonna, you're going to, you'll come in, there will be singing, there'll be music, hymns, so forth, prayers, but the heart of Lutheran worship is going to be the preaching of the word and the celebration of the sacrament of Holy Communion. Very good. And uh, I'm just curious, in Lutheran traditions, um, do people typically, you know, do they pass the uh, sacraments around through the church or do people come to the front to take communion? Uh, and, you know, is there one cup? Are there many cups? How, how is that typically done in a Lutheran tradition? Great question. Uh, that's another practice that isn't really specified for us in our foundational documents. So there's no one answer for how it's going to be done. However, it's going to be more common and more quote-unquote traditional for Lutherans to come forward to receive the sacrament, um, standing or kneeling. Uh, behind us is an altar rail where people in this church kneel to, to, to receive the sacrament. And, uh, and there will be um, usually a shared chalice or two, depending on how you've organized it. Um, but it, that being said, there are certainly many churches that have pre-filled cups um, it's relatively rare to have it pass through the, through the seats. That's uh, a distinction that does, in fact, go all the way back to the 16th century between what became Lutheranism and, and the Reformed tradition. Mm -hmm. um, so we preserved coming forward uh, and leaving your seat to come up to the, to the altar. Uh, whether you receive it in a little tiny glass or a larger chalice, whether you drink it, um, or, or, or dip the, the wafer or do something else. That's somewhat less sure. important. That makes sense. Uh, so the other sacrament you mentioned is baptism. What is a little bit of the uh, Lutheran understanding of baptism? Baptism in uh, the Lutheran understanding is a 
uh, it's an efficacious sacrament, meaning that um, it, it works by God's will and ordinance, not by human will or um, um, worthiness in it to receive. Um, we follow the sort of ancient and medieval consensus of the church in baptizing people at whatever age, from, from infant to you know, the end of, of life, you can, you can be baptized. Uh, we only baptize once. We, we, do, we do not believe that baptism can be repeated. Mm -hmm. So uh, because it is a promise from God, because it's a trust from God, uh, it can never be revoked, it can never be effaced, it can never be undone. So uh, what baptism is for us is the, the forgiveness or remission of original sin and the promise of God to continue forgiving sins, in effect, for the sake of repentance and, and faith. So, um, so, so when, when someone is baptized, uh, they are, if they're a child or an infant, they're brought up. If they're old enough to speak for themselves, they come up, um, but always with a sponsor, always with the community being represented. Um, we do baptisms only in the context of Sunday worship. We, we don't, I mean, except for emergencies, we don't do baptisms uh, privately because the whole church is involved. And um, the, the, the pastor uh, or the person who's doing administering baptism uh, speaks the sort of the promises of God, uh, which we connect going back to Luther all the way through creation, the flood, the rescue of Israel through the Red Sea, all of these uh, stories of kind of salvation through or by sure. means of water. And, uh, and then we say, basically, you're now a, a part of this. Uh, and, and so we say that the, the, the sinful human nature, the old Adam, if you will, is sort of drowned in baptism, and, and the, the, the newly baptized puts on Christ as a new identity, as a, as a garment. And baptism is very important to us because... Uh, we view every day as a kind of return to baptism. It's a one-time event that it happens, and and then it kind of you know it just happens and it's over. It's a it's an identity that we are continually being renewed in. So whenever we confess our sins, whenever we receive words of absolution, we understand it as a return to baptism. Um, in the in the late medieval church when Luther was kind of coming up and getting educated, baptism was understood as the sort of first plank of the shipwreck, sure. right? So, so human nature shipwrecks, uh, you know, original sin comes into the world, and baptism was, your, was the first thing you held on to. And then confession and absolution were the second plank. So when, when baptism sort of stopped working, you'd have that to cling to. And, and, and Luther moved away from that understanding toward baptism as being... Uh, a new identity, a consecration to the royal priesthood of, of God's people, and to this kind of lifetime of forgiveness of sins and, and service out of a position of pure generosity, uh, and the security that comes from knowing that you're, you're embraced by God, of, of service to, to anyone who is in need. Yeah. Almost like when you get baptized, you're saying, I've committed to live a different life from this point forward. Uh, uh, I mean, obviously with you know young kids, they may not fully grasp that, but mm -hmm. if you know, an older person coming forward, uh, they would have this idea that once I've been initiated here, 
then I have a responsibility to the, not only to God, but to the community of faith uh, as a result of making this decision. Right. Well, right. And I think we would, we would usually phrase it as it's, baptism is God's commitment to us, God okay. making a commitment to us. And our response to that is, is supposed to be, is, is ideally, is understood to be um, this, this faithful response. Um, I respond in faith, I respond in obedience, I respond in acts of love and generosity. Um, but whether I do that or not, God's commitment to me isn't changed. So, uh, so, so that's an important emphasis for us when we talk about baptism. It reminds me of the verse in uh, the New Testament where Paul says that even when I'm unfaithful, God is still faithful. Exactly, exactly. So, yes. Very good. So um, with regard to... Uh, you know, churches, oftentimes uh, people who are involved in the community uh, in any given congregation tend to have sort of different proclivities towards certain different social issues. Uh, what are some of the big social issues that the Lutheran Church is concerned with today? Uh, maybe not this congregation specifically, but just sort of in general. Historically, the, the Lutheran churches grew out of um, State, state churches in Germany and in Scandinavia. And in that sense, there's a historical similarity with the Anglican tradition. Um, and, uh, and, and so that relationship as, a, as an official church, in effect, um, one which you were enrolled by default, and one that was supported by the patronage and the protection of the princes, um, along with some theological commitments that the Lutheran tradition had, uh, made us um, a, a churches that were generally socially fairly moderate, politically um, politically connected to the the, the state, uh, and and so our historically our biggest. Um, kind of contribution to Christian social doctrine has been at the level of charity or, or um, um, uh, relief. Mm -hmm. uh, the organization of relief for poverty, hunger, medical care, education, that was a major emphasis early on during the Reformation, uh, areas that were uh, Lutheran in their um, alignment, um, there, was, there was major advocacy for, for educating as many children as possible, including girls, which was a controversial thing at the time. Uh, so um, a, a, a history of, of charitable endeavors and what I would call kind of good government um, engagement. Uh, what changed in the U.S. context uh, was uh, first and, and probably most significantly uh, because we were primarily an immigrant church in the 19th century and into the beginning of the 20th century. And then again, because so many of the countries uh, from which we trace our, our roots were combatants during the world wars and there was a huge flow of refugees, we developed a strong ministry toward immigra immigration and refugee welcoming and resettlement. That's still a major theme in North American Lutheranism today. Um, there are a, a few church groups that do a large share of, 
uh, refugee resettlement, and we were a part of that and always have been. Um, so that's one area, and that continues to be a, a major theme, um, accompanying migrants, um, uh, providing humanitarian relief in the context of, of people who are having their asylum claims adjudicated, uh, people who are refugees waiting for resettlement or who have been approved for resettlement that need a place to live, they need um, you know, to, get, to get set up. We have a long history of that, and that continues. Um, that's one major area. Um, another area in which Lutherans have traditionally been active and still are is in healthcare, um, developing health systems, hospitals, um, foster care in Texas in particular and in many places in the country, um, providing um, foster homes mm -hmm. is, has been a major, and that goes back to past eras where orphanages were more common. So all of yeah. those things are very important. Today, you'll see Lutheran churches having a lot of the debates that other churches have about kind of cultural and political issues. Sure. Um, and, and those tend to break down along fairly similar lines within our, within our congregations and in, and in the denominations that make up Lutheranism in the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, it's uh, sort of like uh, there's a lot of emphasis on some of the teachings in the book of James with regard to uh, the orphan and the widow, and, mm -hmm. and you know, uh, you know, he talks about true religion is helping those in need, right? And mm -hmm. uh, it sounds like Lutherans have had a real heart for those who are neglected or ostracized or mm -hmm. uh, you know pushed to the outer uh, reaches of society. Yes, and and the, the the criticism that goes along with this is that is that we have tended historically to be um, somewhat less clear or less visible in, um, in, in questions of uh, political justice or oppression. Mm -hmm. So, um, and that probably relates, there's some theology behind that, but there's also the, our history of state churches. You know, how critical are you gonna be of, of the state that is funding and protecting you? Mm -hmm. uh, so, so the, 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 we've excelled at, at that kind of humanitarian ministry. We've, we've had some real work to do when it comes to, you know, what is our voice when we're dealing with, with legally structured or economically driven injustice. Sure. Um, we had a lot of leaders, you know, clergy leaders in the civil rights movement in the U.S. Uh, and, and dealing with questions of war and peace. We like to talk a lot about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a Lutheran theologian um, in 20th century Germany, you know, very, very well known and revered now. Um, and so we've tried to look at some of those voices to say, how can we recover uh, a, a properly theological attitude towards questions of right and wrong in the public sphere? Yeah. And that's an ongoing project. Yeah, I think that's important. And, you know, uh, sort of on the flip side of that, some other denominations, like I'm, you know, Baptist and in the Baptist tradition, uh, you sort of face having too much say about government, mm -hmm. uh, where it comes to the point where some people embrace like Christian nationalism, mm -hmm. where you sort of convolute your faith and your commitment to your government uh, as if it's one and the same, and yes. it shouldn't be. So uh, I think that's sort of an area where probably a lot of denominations could do a better job, uh, but it's hard to sort of find that middle ground where uh, you know what you're saying is clear but it's not uh 
compromise by, you know, either swinging too much in favor of the government or too much against the government or, or whatever else the case may be. Yes, and that's uh, generally, uh, historically, you will find people from Lutheran churches in positions of responsibility, um, but not necessarily being very vocal about that or mm -hmm. about their, their Lutheran faith informing what they do. Um, this is, I mean this as both a, a um, uh, genuine praise and kind of gentle criticism. We make excellent bureaucrats. Sure. We, we're really good at, at, at administering things. Uh, and, uh, and, and that goes at the level of our, of our charities. If you, uh, you know, if you're uh, Lutheran World Relief, which, which does um, various kinds of disaster response around the world, I mean, they're very effective. They're very well administered. Mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, turning that into, a, into an explicit faith claim is something we tend to not be as, as um, mm -hmm. adept at, or we don't have the same experience with. Sure, that makes sense. Yeah, with, uh, with a lot of Baptists, you know, with their missions endeavors, it's uh, frequent that I think that the gospel comes ahead of the relief. But, uh, you know, both are important. You've yes. got to do both. And uh, if you're not meeting people's physical needs, they're probably not going to be in a place where they can hear the gospel. Mm -hmm. You know, in the same way, uh, if you are meeting physical needs but not really dealing with the gospel, then some of their spiritual needs may not be being mm -hmm. met. Uh, but uh, what I think I hear you saying is that for Lutherans, uh, meeting the needs is important. It's sort of a way of living out your faith. Yes. And so for Lutherans who uh, are committed to their congregations, their church, uh, they're gonna be involved in some kind of social charity as a way of expressing their faith in Christ. Yes, that's, that's, a, good, that's a good way to put it. Um, uh, in one of Martin Luther's uh, uh, very um, influential treatises, um, it's, a, it's a short work that, that um, can be read, you know, um, it's widely available online, uh, different translations for free, I think. Uh, called the freedom of a Christian, mm -hmm. and and he, he says the um, that a Christian is is the uh, is the perfectly free ruler of all, and at the same time the, the completely bond you know, servant of all, and and that's a that's a um, a paradox that 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 kind of goes through our theology and our practice in a lot of different ways. The idea both that Christ achieves all righteousness for you, uh, that he, he fulfills God's will for you completely without any contribution on your part, but also that when you're baptized, you, you become, and this was Luther's word, a Christ, a, a anointed person for the sake of your neighbor. You, in turn, you know, uh, are supposed to act with that same kind of completely free um, self-giving, uh, which which doesn't which doesn't seek to earn anything for itself, and and so that's a that's a that's a theme that goes through you know everything we do, uh, and 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 it's it's both a real strength and a real point of vulnerability in our in our history and in, and in our our life as a as a tradition that we we stress both this complete freedom and this complete obligation at the same time. Yeah. Um, 
as, as a way in which our faith is made real. People should be able to see Christ in us, but we should also be sharing God's kingdom with people. Exactly, yes, yes. So uh, another question is, um, <clears throat> if someone was gonna be, say, looking into the Lutheran Church, what are some things that would sort of attract someone to become part of the Lutheran denomination? It's a great question. Um, the, and I'll speak primarily for myself here because uh, I didn't grow up going to church um, outside of a very brief period. Uh, when I was baptized as a, as a eight-year-old, um, but uh, I, did, I did, for all intents and purposes, come to all of this as a young adult, and I learned about it more or less with, with fresh eyes at that point in my life. Um, the, the things that I think are most important and that I would hope would be attractive to people who are visiting a Lutheran church or encountering Lutheranism uh, from a place of, of open-mindedness is first uh, the, the particular emphasis that we have on, on grace, on everything in church and everything in the scriptures, in everything that we do as being first a gracious gift from God, and second of all, a means of receiving grace for ourselves. And so we talk about this in, in the scriptures, for, for example, you know, Martin Luther was a translator of, of the, the scriptures. He was a scholar of the Old Testament in particular, and, uh, and he lectured. I've got uh, a volume of, of, of his lectures. These are just his lectures from, from 1535 on the first four chapters of Galatians. So, you know, that's, this is the kind of, you know, time and care he took uh, speaking to his students about the scriptures. But we, we don't just look at the scriptures as a kind of, um, as just a, like a generically true thing or a repository of, of um, information from God. We look at it as the way that God speaks to us, primarily in terms of law, that is commands or requirements, and in terms of gospel, promises and grace. Um, so, so the clarity of grace is something that I want everybody to hear in a Lutheran church. The other thing, and this is related, is that uh, that's important to me and that I would hope would be uh, appealing to people, is that we believe in the objective action of grace through the sacraments. So in other words, um, you might come to church and think, oh, you know, I'm really not feeling it today. I'm just, I'm, Jesus is in his tomb, uh, you know, the, the angels are silent, uh, God's not in his heaven, and I am cold as a stone today, but the truth is, you're still baptized, you are still invited forward to the altar, and God shows up in those things, mm -hmm. in the bread and the wine and in the water, um, regardless of my own state of mind. And... And I personally find that very comforting. I, I find it very comforting that I don't need to work myself into a certain state of mind, or as they called it theologically, a disposition to receive grace. I show up 
and God is already there. God is already promising to be present to me in certain ways without my having to be any kind of person at all. I feel like that's very important. Um, that's something that, that, that I come back to over and over again and that I always want to leave people with when they come here. Yeah, I think that's very important. You know, anybody has times where they feel like they're just not connecting with God. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes, uh, when you're not involved in a church community, uh, it's real easy to feel like, you know, is God there? I feel alone mm -hmm. in all of this. Mm -hmm. And part of coming to the community is to be reminded that we're all together in this. Mm -hmm. And so the emphasis on the fact that, yes, God is here, whether you feel it or not, right. he's here, he's present. And what we're doing together is a reminder that we are all one and the same as the body of Christ. Yes, and that's that's something that's, that's very important uh, to us historically. Um, the, 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 the worship life of the church in the 16th century when Martin Luther and the other reformers were, were doing their work was something that everybody kind of deplored, no sure. matter what their theological position. And it was really important to Luther to say, look, you don't, don't go, I mean, if you want to go on a pilgrimage, fine, go on a pilgrimage. If you want to, you know, do your own devotions, that's fine. But really, your your parish church, you know, that's a place that should be for you. That's where you should go to meet God, um, and you should do it regularly. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, so that's something that that I think uh, that's by no means unique to Lutheran Christianity. Everybody emphasizes that now, um, but it's something that is part of our kind of DNA. Yeah. Uh, that that you, you go to church because God is reliably there waiting for you. Yeah, it should be a place of, uh, if you will, rest, mm -hmm. a place of solace, a place of encouragement, uh, a place of communion with other believers. Uh, but you should always be able to go to church feeling like, um, you know, this in the place where I'm going, uh, I know that I'm going to be taught the Word of God. I'm going to learn the Word of God. I'm going to hear about the gospel, mm -hmm. and it's going to facilitate uh, my walk with the Lord. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and that means also as a practical matter that we 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 try to leave as much as possible to the freedom of people's conscience. Mm -hmm. Uh, meaning that uh, because we try to focus with clarity on law, on what, what is commanded, and, and what is promised, we tend to not be really interested in, you know, what's a Christian lifestyle, what's, what's a Christian way to run a household, what are, you know, what are people's roles supposed to be. Um, we're, we're not real big on that. Yeah. Um, we're, we're because because we really think you know that the, that the key thing to focus on is what does God communicate through those through those things. Mm -hmm. So you're not going to hear a lot of preaching from proverbs in Lutheran churches. You know you're, sure. you're not going to hear. Um, I mean James we, we is we read James on our lectionary cycle. You're going to hear about it uh, because it's so strong ethically. Um, but but there's there's a lot of stuff that we just we don't really concern ourselves with too much mm -hmm. because we don't think it belongs to the, the heart of the gospel message. Sure. It sounds like you give a lot of freedom to people to say, okay, I'm part of this church. I feel convicted of this at home, so this is how I'm going to run my house. This other person in my same congregation feels convicted to do things a little differently. 
that's how they're going to run their house, and that's okay. Is that sort of what I'm hearing a little bit? Or at least as a church, we're not going to dictate that. Yeah, yeah. We, we, we don't say, uh, you know, un unless you discipline your child this way, you're not a good Christian or something like that. That right. would not be, you know, that would, that would be very unusual to hear in a Lutheran context. And, and beyond this, it, it goes back historically to the idea that, that, um, that every, every Christian has a vocation, and has a, a, a religious vocation. So if you, if you go back to the 15th century, there was a sense of, of there were religious, you know, that term being used as a kind of community, a kind of a vocation to monastic life. Uh, and, and then everyone else is just being, you know, doing whatever they did. And, and Luther really tried to emphasize that your vocation, uh, your assignment from God, where you were in the world, uh, was religiously important. If you raised pigs, raise, pig, raise, raise your pigs as a Christian, that's just as important as praying in the chapel all day. And, and I think that had kind of carried over to the idea that there are all kinds of ways you can be a Christian. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of ways you can live out those promises that God makes to you in your baptism. And, and, and so we try not to set up distinctions where they don't need to, to be. Mm -hmm. Now, that's always controversial, and we're always trying to figure out what is and isn't essential. But that's yeah. the mindset, I would say. No, I think that's very good. That's very helpful. So, um, so sort of in summarizing some of the things we've talked about, the Lutheran tradition uh, arose out of the teachings of Martin Luther, during the Protestant Reformation. Uh, it uh, has, uh, over time, uh, gone from European uh, cultures to the American culture, but even the American culture here was founded on um, people who had come over here as minority groups, and as such, the heart of the Lutheran Church in the States has always had a, a real soft spot for helping the foreigner, helping the one who has been displaced or is a refugee, and that uh, the heart of the Lutheran Church is the gospel message. Um, and the gospel message is physically observed uh, through baptism as one sacrament, through the communal taking of the Lord's Supper uh, as a second sacrament. And uh, there's a lot of freedom in Lutheran churches to then sort of go from those essentials to uh, the specifics of how they're going to do their own worship whether it be more high church, like a Roman Catholic mm -hmm. church, or whether it be a little bit more low church, like some of your non-denominational Protestant churches. And uh, on the whole, uh, the Lutheran church gives a lot of room for people in their conscience uh, to make their own decisions and decide how they're going to serve and how they're going to do uh, charitable acts or other things of that nature that are important to uh, being part of how we live out our faith. Mm -hmm. That, that's very well said. So. And, and I'll add, um, I didn't get into this, but, uh, but for, for a lot of historical reasons, much of them having to do with, with European colonialism, there is now a very, there are very large Lutheran churches in sub-Saharan Africa. There are smaller Lutheran churches in Latin America and in some Asian countries. Uh, but, but today, uh, um, the countries with the largest Lutheran populations, I believe, I could be remembering this wrong, but I think the first is maybe Sweden, and I believe the second is Ethiopia, the largest Lutheran, the second largest yeah. Lutheran church in, in the world. So it is, it, is, uh, uh, it, it is a movement that has gone well beyond its northern European roots, 
Um, it has taken root in different uh, cultural contexts. And, um, and I like to think that that's happened, at least in part, because there is some truth. We never claim to be the only church or the, or the you know, God's true, you know, one holy apostolic church. We, we always want to be a movement for the good of that whole church. Mm -hmm. um, but I do like to think that it means that there is some, some insight there. There's something from God that, that has allowed this uh, work of a very obscure um, friar from a very small town in Germany to, to have uh, you know, changed Christianity in this way. Yeah, and it's, there's no doubt that Luther's contributions to Christianity really did uh, spur lots of worldwide change for the church. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, his works indirectly affected uh, more or less every Protestant denomination that we mm -hmm. have today. Yes. And uh, it's nice to be able to say, yeah, we, uh, we try to follow the teachings of this particular friar who mm -hmm. did come from a very small, kind of, mm -hmm. uh, not really, I guess, I mean, by some standards insignificant, but uh, certainly not, you know, he wasn't, uh, he didn't grow up in the Vatican. You know, he was, he was out in the, in the country. Wittenberg was not, uh, was not a big city and it was not a prominent university at the time. And, um, and that, but that is, that's how God works in the world. Um, and, uh, and um, I, I, if I could leave you with maybe one, you know, essential thought uh, about Luther from Luther and something that I think has gained a lot of kind of purchase in, in Christianity more generally. Uh, it's uh, Luther's idea from a 1518 document that he wrote um, called the Heidelberg Disputation. You can look it up, it's online. Um, uh, where he talked about um, being a theologian of the cross, by which he, he meant that um, you look for God, a theologian of the cross looks for God in suffering, uh, in, in things that are rejected and despised, uh, whereas a theologian of glory looks for God in the goodness of things uh, that are visible. Uh, and, 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 and he says this is the task, really, of, of theology, is to, is to um, become a theologian of the cross, to emphasize what Christ does for you, uh, and, and to not be deceived by human categories of goodness, excellence, beauty. Um, I think that's a very that's a very important insight, and that's something that has had a yeah. lot of influence. Um, I think that directly influenced Dietrich Bonhoeffer, absolutely. who you mentioned earlier, uh, and that sort of leads into his teachings on cheap grace versus costly grace, and mm -hmm. uh, his idea and push that uh, you know to be followers of the gospel, it's going to cost us something if right. we if we are looking for a theology of the cross uh, and looking for suffering, we're going to have to go to where that suffering mm -hmm. is. Mm -hmm. And I think that played into, of course, all the work that he did in his ethics and his desire to help those who were suffering in the Holocaust and so yes. on. Yes, yes, absolutely. He was a he was a very very able explicator of that of that idea, um, and and the idea that 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 God's goodness is in that sense hidden. It's hidden in the cross uh, rather than revealed through visible works of glory and and beauty. Um, and that's something that I think I have to come back to over and over again as a leader. Uh, and it's something that I have to preach over and over again because it isn't intuitive, but it is, it is deeply comforting um, when, when we think that, that God was willing and able to, to tra traverse that entire distance, uh, you know, to, to come to us in that, in that humblest form. Yeah, very good. Well, 
Uh, Reverend Ben, thank you so much for your time today. And for those of you uh, watching or listening, uh, thanks for your, uh, your observance of this uh, podcast. And we will see you again next time on the Faith and Culture Now podcast. Thank you. Thank you.